This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight we are talking about how one man pivoted his business in a pandemic and is now giving back to keep kids safe. Also, what is the latest on the pandemic? The masks, the shields, the goggles. And what about lovers in this dangerous time? Is it safe for anyone to have sex anymore? Of course it is, but there are some rules and some devices, and I will go through those with you. Tune in to learn more. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. My next guest is uh, just an amazing person. This particular business started on March 20th, the Canadian Shield. So not only did they start on March 20th of 2020, they've also donated an exorbitant amount. I'm going to get the exact number from my next guest, Jeremy Hedges, who is the founder of the Canadian Shield. And he joins me on the line from Kitchener, Ontario. Good evening, Jeremy. Good evening, Maureen. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Listen, thank you so much for uh, this Great work for joining me on the program and for your generosity. A couple of things I, I want to talk about first. So you basically got into um, making or uh, you know creating face shields um, on March 20th, right at the kind of the start, maybe a few days after the start of this pandemic that we are all living in. So um, how did that come to be? To give you a little bit of background, our, our company, we were in education technology, so we sold 3D printers, laser cutters, robotics kits to classrooms across Canada. With with those laser cutters, we were able to cut out, you know, face shields and, and 3D print the headbands with our with our printers. So a local doctor came to our office, let us know that our local Waterloo Region hospitals were short 10,000 shields in like the next 10 days. So uh, I think that we did what anybody would do, and we jumped in to help. So we started printing and donating shields, and eventually that, uh, it, it scaled beyond what we could donate at that time. So we, we started working with Ontario Health and the federal government to deliver shields. We've now um, produced and delivered around 14 million shields across the country. Wow, and you're just getting ready to donate uh, 54,000 face shields to uh, many different provinces. One in particular is British Columbia is going to reap the benefits of your generosity um, on Ontario, uh, Alberta, Manitoba. So you've basically donated, and uh, tell me that number again, how many face shields you have donated to education ministries for teachers returning to classrooms across Canada? It's it's just over 750,000 face shields. So a, a face shield for every teacher in the country. That's just amazing. I mean, what an incredible gift. That is so, uh, just so awesome. What what made you uh, decide to donate this to our teachers across the country, every single teacher across the country? Well, when, when everything, I mean, number one, our, our roots are, are in education. So we have, we have lots of friends and family, and it's, it's important to us that, um, you know, everybody feels safe going back into the classroom this fall. And, uh, and then secondly, when, when all of this got started for us, we had sort of two parallel efforts, a donation effort where the community would 3D print the, the headband piece, and then we would cut out the plastic to make shields and donate to frontline healthcare workers. And then we had a commercial, you know, side where we were scaling up automation equipment to mass manufacture this to get ahead of the problem for the country. But we had school boards from across Canada working to 3D print the headband. They would ship it to us. We would clean it, attach it to a shield, and then ship it out to the front line. So with the help of, of teachers and school boards, we were able to donate tens of thousands of face shields at a time when 
frontline healthcare workers were critically short. So this was our way of, of paying that gift forward. Oh my gosh, that's so nice. <laughs> Bring makes me uh, tear up a little bit. Um, and you know, recently, uh, Dr. Fauci, of course, uh, in the U.S., talked about goggles and protection of the mucous membranes of the eyes. Uh, Shield will help to do that. In addition to, um, well, wearing a mask will help um, with the mucous membranes of the mouth. Um, but Shields will will do that for sure. Uh, so how important do you feel this device is to the success of children remaining in schools um, as we look to the fall? You know, I, I think that every layer counts at this point. You know, we're, we're going into uh, a lot of unknowns. And I think as much as anything, it's just a, a little bit of extra peace of mind. You know, it's, it's one extra layer of safety that uh, makes, feel, make, makes teachers and, and folks feel like, like they're safe. And I know that in our factory, it's made a big difference. You know, since, since we started on March 20th, all of our staff wear masks. They wear shields every day. And it, it really is comforting. It certainly does give teachers, I imagine, parents and even children, once they learn about them, um, a little bit more confidence to actually remain in the classroom. So how has your generous donation been received by by teachers and by ministries of health across the country? Yeah, you know what, it's, it's, it's been really gratifying. I mean, lots of folks have reached out to say thanks, and I mean, uh, ultimately, I, I I would imagine that a lot of folks won't know that uh, they did come from us in the end. But uh, you know what? I just I just hope that they feel that much safer to have them. So it, it's just so great. And you know, you also took a uh, you know a lot of people have suffered in this pandemic, and and many people uh, lost their jobs and and didn't know what to do. But pivot has been a word that's been closely associated with the pandemic. And if somebody has been able to pivot their business, and it sounds like you have, um, you know, it can be very beneficial for them and for their families, of course. Um, you know, that's you're also very inspirational in the fact that you have demonstrated that you could actually pivot, and it sounds like your employees rose to the occasion. You know what, it's, it's been pretty incredible to um, not just be surviving, but growing through all of this, and, and we've created 300 jobs here in the Waterloo region. So our, our team grew from, from 10 people to uh, at our peak, 330 people, and you know we're a living wage factory. So everybody is uh, $18 an hour. Uh, we provide catered meals. So we've we've done, I think, a, a pretty great thing for our community in a really hard time. Wow, you have! I want to work for you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that. You know, it's more and more. I think we've learned so much from the pandemic. And one of the things is about compassion and empathy and caring for other people. And, and not to mention some people have more than others. And we've had large disparities of wealth uh, between people. But it, but it sounds like you're working to make things just a little bit more fair for Canadians. And, and nothing can be better than getting Canadians back to work. Well, and I think that that's, that's one thing that we can take as a positive out of all of this is that I think we're going to see a rush of, of Canadian manufacturing coming back. I think uh, across industries, I think PPE will be the catalyst, but we're going to see a ton of industries onshoring their manufacturing because it makes sense economically. We can create good-paying, high-skilled jobs. And ultimately, you know, in, in some of these critical areas like PPE, we know now that we can't rely on a global supply chain to keep us safe. So. We need to do this for the long term. You know, our, our company made a short-term pivot to uh, manufacture face shields, but that's not the end for us. You know, we're, we're now making surgical masks here in Canada. We're going to continue to expand to 
a variety of other PPE and even manufacturing the materials here in Canada so that the next time we're in a pandemic, we're safe. We can provide for ourselves. It's just amazing. It's a, it's a great story. And with industries coming back, like, well, construction never really went down in a lot of parts of the country, but like the film industry is coming back. Of course, health, of course, healthcare. Uh, we're going to be looking differently uh, as to how seniors are live in their homes or, or, or the, how they um, live, maybe not so close together. Universities going back. I mean, there's just so many um, different arenas of life. Um, to keep us up and moving and out and living and and your great shields um, have certainly done uh, their job. So Jeremy Hedges, thank you so much. That's Canadian Shield. How can people find you? Uh, they can just find us on our website. It's canadianshieldppe.ca. Uh, and, and for the teachers, they can look us up at inksmith.ca. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jeremy. And thanks for taking your time to share your story and for, of course, for your generosity. Hey, Maureen, thanks, for, thanks so much for having me on and uh, you stay safe. Thank you so much. My pleasure. But right now, joining me on the line is the clinical professor at the University of British Columbia, a medical doctor and our resident expert on everything COVID-19, the one and only Dr. Gurdeep Parhar. Good evening, Dr. Parhar. Good evening, Maureen. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Good, good. I'm I'm pleased to be here with you on your hot evening. <laughs> I hope you're not too hot, <laughs> temperature-wise, that is, <laughs> or that you haven't tested hot <laughs> or screened hot, <laughs> all COVID terms. Um, how are you? I'm, I'm, I'm doing well, thank you. Oh, well, that's um, good. We're sort of getting, talking testing. Getting back into the groove as September comes, exactly. Yeah, does it, must September come? I don't want it to come. I love August. Um, yeah, so speaking of testing, uh, you know, have you had a little experience of that of your own that I've just learned yeah, about? Yeah, so I, 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 I wasn't ill at all, but I did need to have it done for travel purposes. So mm-hmm. it was um, a mandatory type type thing for work-related travel. And my daughter, my adult daughter, who had it, uh, testing done also for travel recently, um, where she had to travel, she had to have it done. And she said, Dad, you know, it's a bit like tickling your brain. And I said, you know, we administer them, but you, you rarely do doctors and nurses need to have it done themselves unless they fall into those risk groups. And, you know, it was... I have to. I think I expected worse than it was, Maureen. It was not. I wouldn't want it done every minute or every day, but it uh, it wasn't as uncomfortable as I thought it would be. So, for all our listeners who are having to have the nasopharyngeal swab done, it is this long Q-tip type thing that goes up uh, up your nose and towards the back. But it's it's not super uncomfortable, um, and it, it is something that. You know, it's quite tolerable if you have to have it done. And, and, and it was use, negative, so I can reassure you that. Yeah. Uh, congratulations. I'm, I'm very happy about that. Um, it, they're using a smaller swab, I understand, as well. But there's more advances coming down the pike that may actually help with uh, budgeting for people because these tests are quite expensive to have these done. And with people going back to work physically, we're going to see a, a ramp up of that. But uh, tell me about the, the swish and swallow or the saliva test that, that's more akin to uh, a urine test, for example, or similar. Exactly. So 
with the with the swabs, it, it, there's a bunch of challenges, Marine. First of all, it needs to be processed in the laboratory, and we've all been hearing about the delays in the U.S. Sometimes it's up to two weeks of delay mm-hmm. before a result comes back. In most parts of Canada, we've been fairly good. We've been getting uh, results back within one or two days, sometimes three or four. But one of the things is it requires lab um, equipment. Even the swabs themselves, Marine, the long um, swab itself, and then the the medium it needs to go in, or the or the test tube. You know, they they they, they do run out and. There's limited supplies of them. So most recently, a great development has been that there's a, a company um, out of Yale University um, with researchers there that have developed a saliva test. So basically what you do is you spit into this cup and then the sample goes to the lab. Now, unfortunately, it still does need to be processed by a lab. But, but, but the nice thing is that these researchers have done this on open source, which means that they're not keeping this as some sort of patented, highly secretive mm-hmm. technology. They're, they're opening it up so that any Anybody with the right uh, the right equipment can actually run these things. And Marine, the nice thing is, then it just requires a sterile cup, much like you would put a, a urine sample into or a sputum sample into. Um, and the idea is that it's a lot cheaper, um, a lot more comfortable than than the nasopharyngeal swab, which goes into the back of the nose, back of the nose, through the nose, and back to the back of the the mouth, and so forth. Um, and and the goal is that if this develops, it might be one step closer towards then developing true um, kits at home, kind of like we do urine pregnancy tests um, and so forth. So this is a step in the right direction. And really, it's about accessibility and reducing the cost, Marine. And if we could get to a point where these tests are reliable. So what they did was they compared the saliva test to the nasopharyngeal swabs, and they were the results were similar in about 90% of cases. So not perfect, but getting there. Mm-hmm. And that, that's an exciting development because we want these, um, these this testing to be more readily and less expensively available, not just in North America, but around the world. Right. And the thing about uh, for travelers who are entering Canada, they need to be, they quite often need to be tested. There there are some policies at their companies that actually suggest that. So they're having to hire nurses to go and uh, and uh, to go and actually do the testing, which can be very expensive. It can also be very difficult uh, to get nurses to do that. Or if there's on-site testing that requires a nurse, you know, it can cost you, you know, six or seven hundred dollars a day versus having a something that you spit into, you know, the MOA or medical office assistant, or as I call mine, my chief executive officer, um, can actually uh, process those and, and ship them off to the lab. So that's really exciting. Now, there's... Um, with people going back to work physically, uh, there is this uh, need to screen people. You know, it has been, there's a, a guideline, provincial guidelines and a nation, national guidelines, CDC, BC, CDC, all of those organizations are recommending screening, which consists of typically 14 questions and also how, how you've been, and, um, but also temperature taking. But there's some controversy around temperature taking that it may be giving us a false sense of security in part because people have already gone out in public. They've gotten on public transit. They've exposed themselves. And then all of a sudden you're taking their temperature in the lobby where they may be exposing themselves to other people as well. What are your thoughts on temperature taking? So we're going to see a lot of this morning, whether you're stepping into concerts or stepping onto a plane or into some work environment, and you'll be seeing these infrared um, thermometers that are now taking temperatures. But just to remind everyone, what we've been, Maureen, you and I have been saying since the beginning of this thing in March, um, the COVID pandemic, is that when, once you get exposed, you can have symptoms as early as two days after being exposed or getting infected, but as late as 12 days. We don't think you, anybody has onset of symptoms after 14 
14 days. So it's between 2 and 12 days, with most people getting their symptoms at about 5 to 6 days after, after they're exposed to the infection. So what does that mean? That means that the majority of people may not have any symptoms for about 5 to 6 days. And so fever is one of the hallmark symptoms of COVID-19, um, the COVID-19 infection. So if you think about it, Maureen, if somebody is being detected with a thermometer, what are you actually doing? You're detecting sort of two groups of people. One group people that you're detecting are people who have the infection, perhaps even know that they're sick, and maybe even know that they have a fever, but they're trying to hide it. Um, so they would be picking up that group. And let's for let's for the sake of um, sort of goodness and, and understanding that nobody would ever try to hide their symptoms, think that there won't be too many people who will go out in public knowing that they're sick. So so that would be one group that gets identified, somebody who's trying to hide their fever. But more the more likely thing are people who actually don't know that they're that they have a fever. So these would be people who, um, you know, are wandering around and they've got the infection. Um, but but the, so let's say they've taken acetaminophen or Tylenol or they've taken ibuprofen, known as Advil or um, Motrin. The, 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 if they've taken either of those medications for whatever reason, that, that temperature may not be elevated. So they could actually have the COVID-19 infection and, and a normal temperature won't identify them. And, and, and finally, if they're in that incubation period, which means that they've got the infection, but their um, the symptoms haven't come on because they're not at that five to six day mark. The temperature could read normal, but they're still not just infected, but they're contagious. So um, one of the challenges I have with this is I don't. I mean, I, I think it's one extra step, Maureen. And if, if a workplace or an airport or a train station or you know can afford to do temperature testing, there's no harm in it. Uh-huh. I think I think what, where where you and I would warn people is to get that false sense of security that just because your temperature was identified to be normal that you're, first of all, not sick with the infection, but secondly, that you're not infectious, which means you can't pass it on. So it is one extra layer. It's a bit like, you know, after 9-11 when all these extra measures were put in at airports. You know, some of us kind of raised our eyebrows and said, you know, is this just trying to give us a false sense of confidence? And what is it really accomplishing? And, and so I'm not going to be opposed to temperature and testing marine, but I think at the end of the day, we can't be overly confident in it. What you said at the very beginning is the most important, which is a questionnaire about your symptoms, who have you been exposed to, have you traveled? I think that kind of history is probably m- way more important than a random temperature check. Exactly. And then in February, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention had screened about 46,000 travelers that were entering the U.S. from China with the hope of catching the disease as it hit the U.S. borders. But of all of those people, the 46,000 who were checked for fevers, only one was plucked out who later actually tested positive for COVID-19. So uh, I agree with you. I think it may be giving people a false sense of security. I do have a question about um, vaccines. What is the latest on vaccines? And is that the answer? Once we have a vaccine, are we going to be going back to the pre-COVID life? So, Maureen, and I've talked about this before on this program, is that we've been talking a lot about this race to have the vaccines out, and China and Russia are already saying they have them and they've implemented them. But you know what's keeping people up is, will there be a vaccine that provides adequate protection? And then, aside from vaccines, Maureen, are people who've gotten the infection, when can they go back to regular behaviors and work and school? And then, is any of this going to let us go back to any sort of normalcy afterwards? One of the challenges is that we don't know. 
only the future will tell. And Maureen, what everybody's doing is they're dusting off old research because they're trying to find out where we studied this before. And and the very popular and very um, influential journal called Nature um, did publish, um, republish and reconsider a study that was done in the 1980s. And this may seem like a bizarre thing, but what they did was they took 15 healthy people um, in, in the United Kingdom in England and basically put them and exposed them to cold virus. And just to remind everyone, we think the coronavirus is one of our many viruses that caused the common cold. Anyway, they exposed them to, 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 these, um, to the cold um, virus, the coronavirus that causes the cold. And then a year later, they asked them to come back and expose them again to see if, if they, when they were exposed the first time, did that build some sort of immunity? And the answer is, in scientific terms, marine, quote-unquote, sort of. What that means is that of the 15 people, the 14 people came back and then one person didn't come back for the second part of the study, that if they were exposed again, they, didn't, they actually did get infected. And although they didn't get really sick, it took a little bit of time before their body could amount an immune response, even though they had previously been infected. So what's worrying people now is that even if there is a vaccine, will it truly be offering um, a full defense and and that's the challenge right now is while we're getting all sort of excited about this, when you need what the vaccine developers are hoping is that there's some sort of what they call sterilizing immunity. And what that means is that we have enough neutralizing antibodies in our system so that when you do get exposed to the virus again, will these neutralizing antibodies sort of jump on the virus and not let us get sick again? Absolutely. And we're not sure, Maureen. I, I've yeah. got a couple of callers and, and here. One, one, yeah, no worries. And one of the challenges is that we don't know. We don't know that now whether these um, vaccines will do that. Awesome. That's not comforting, but Catherine is on the line. No, good, it e- isn't. good evening, Catherine. Well, that's kind of a good segue for what I want to ask. Uh-huh. I know I had it in December, but it wasn't tested. Um, but I did just recently, a couple of weeks ago, have the back of my tongue. I had all my, uh, the glands on my tongue swell up. And I went to a walk-in clinic and they said they thought it was an allergy reaction. So just questioning, could that be from my My first question... Thanks, Catherine. My first question is, did anybody, were there documented cases in December, Dr. Parhar, in Canada? Is that a, uh, that's a brilliant question. And you know what? I've got one uh, family member who I won't name, my sister, um, but, and, um, <laughs> but, but, um, and, and a few patients um, that had these really persistent chest fever type infections, Maureen, in November, December, even early January. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder, these are people who otherwise don't get sick, and they had these long-hauler type infections. It really makes me wonder whether they had the COVID-19 before we were aware of it. I don't know. And yeah. they've yet to have the antibody test. I thought I had it three that. times, but the authorities said impossible. But uh, that may have been a, uh, an allergy, Catherine, but it really would warrant a physical exam. Would you agree, Dr. Parhar? I, I would. And typically with glands that get swollen, we do think of infections before we think of allergies. Um, so I would suggest you, you um, go, undergo some more Maybe have a COVID sure test just to find infection. out. Yeah, yeah. Fi- have one. Yeah, Let I us know, agree. Catherine. Uh, and then I have another text here. Maureen, as a woman who has fairly extreme hot flashes, I have concern about the potential of registering a fever on a temperature check while I am experiencing a hot flash. There is an app for that. That's Cath- uh, no, not Catherine. I don't know what her name is. Uh, no, there's not an app for that. But you know what? When people go through those screenings with the temperature check, if you have a temperature um, that that registers higher than 38 or at 38 or 100.4 or higher, um, 
and and you have a reason for it so that you have a hot flash, they would actually do a bit of a secondary screen to find that out. And they would ask the question, let's hope, um, you know, might there be another reason that you have? And you can say, I'm having a hot flash right now. And so you'd be given a cool down period and have your temperature taken again. But but that's a great question. Um, Maureen, Maureen, let me ask you a question on that. So when when women do get the hot flash with the menopausal, perimenopausal symptoms, can the temperature go significantly high? Uh, You know, temperature irregulation occurs, and so it can actually be low and it can be high. Um, But I'm assuming that this woman has uh, registered high uh, in the past. Yeah. So, yeah, so it can be warmer than usual. Yeah, and that's a, and that's a really good point to make is that when your temperature is elevated, when you're going through one of these checks, is there's multiple other explanations for why your temperature might be elevated. That's right. That's right. Or fatigue, for example, if somebody's pregnant, or um, you know, if somebody has um, you know been, they may have been rushing, you know, to get transit, and they may have run all the way, and you know, they might be sweating and hot. You know, that could be a reason. But there's there's many reasons other than COVID for some of those symptoms. Some people have chronic medical conditions, and they may have have one of those symptoms, um, asthma, for example. So, um, Dr. Parhar, it's always go by, goes by too quickly with you. You know, we've been in this pandemic for a while now, five or six months. It looks like there's no end in sight. Uh, We've managed to flatten the curve in many places. Other places, there is a surge. And so I was thinking, I think we need to get back to basics because you got to wonder, you know, about lovers in a dangerous time. I could sing for you, but I don't want to put you through that. Um, You know, we know that we can slow the spread of COVID-19 through social and physical distancing. But you know what? That has its impact on relationships and it could be a negative impact on sex and relationships. So uh, just as a reminder, in case you don't realize it, in case you're just tuning into the Sunday Night Health Show, COVID-19 is an infectious disease. It's caused by the novel coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2, and it may result in mild or severe illness. And that can include symptoms such as cough, fever, shortness of breath, and the need for hospitalization. But, um, you know, many people are asymptomatic and they don't even realize that they have it and yet they can test positive even though they have not felt sick. Um, The virus typically spreads through contact with respiratory droplets from an infected person and that happens when they sing. So that's why I didn't sing for you. No, but typically when they cough or sneeze or breathe. And, And so we have to remember this in terms of you've got to think about it that everybody is likely or view everybody as especially a lover <laughs> or someone that you haven't, that you're not living with yet, but you have to view them as potential carriers or potentially infected. Uh, and so that's how a lot of businesses are viewing this as they, you know, get back to work. And that's not a bad way to look at it, whether you're inside the bedroom or out of the bedroom. The virus can also live on surfaces. And so it can spread if a person touches a surface or an object that has the virus on it and then touches their eyes or their nose or their mouth. And so it gets in through the mucous membranes. Now, COVID-19 has not, um, you know, routinely been found in vaginal secretions. I I believe there was um, in China... There, it was found in some the ejaculate of a, a couple of men, 
But um, so beware. Um, but it typically um, it's the nature of it is that because of um, sex and typically involves physical closeness, um, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, there might be some performances going on. Uh, but anyway, when it does involve, you know, heavy breathing and physical closeness and sweating and kissing and lots of caressing and, you know, getting all heated up, uh, basically, uh, and also closeness to those mucous membranes. Um, the, and, and it's typically, you know, we're closer than six feet apart, which is the recommendation. So somebody having sex with somebody who's infected, you know, their chances of transmitting the disease are quite high. So you're probably thinking, oh my gosh, can I have sex? Can I ever have sex again? <laughs> well, yes, you can. That's the good news. And I've got some tips for you. Number one, have sex with people close to you. And keep in mind, you are your safest sex partner. So take advantage of the opportunity, and the pandemic has provided uh, lots of opportunity, to uh, get reacquainted with your body and have some fun. Know yourself. But, of course, it's important that you wash your hands. Any sex toys that you might be using, uh, make sure you wash those with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. And do not use your handy-dandy hand sanitizer, no cheating here, on your toys or on your your genitals. They typically have 70% alcohol and they can actually, uh, they can affect the integrity of, of both things. Your, your genitals, they actually might burn uh, your genitals, especially if you are a woman in midlife who may have decreased estrogen receptors in your vulva, vagina, and so it actually can um, be extremely painful. So uh, the next safest partner is a consenting partner that you live with. Okay, what if you the pandemic happened and you're not living together, but you were seeing each other. Well, maybe a lot of people have made the decision to move in together. Um, if you are isolating together and neither of you have symptoms and you're not at high risk of exposure to COVID-19, you should be okay with having sex. Now, if you are a healthcare worker or somebody in, on the front lines, a restaurant worker, um, you know, there's actually a much greater risk. Um, and lots of healthcare workers and frontline workers are taking special precautions to prevent the spread of uh, COVID-19, especially if their partner that they're living with has immunosuppression in any way. So in line with national and provincial social distancing recommendations, physical sexual activity should only occur with a consenting partner with whom you live. But you know what? Is that reality? I'm not sure it is. So if you don't live with your partner, you know, you might ask the question, does sex mean the same thing as essential travel? <laughs> I think it does in certain circumstances. But you must respect the guidance on social and physical distancing, of course. And so it does include avoiding sex with someone who doesn't live with you, but some people just can't live that way. So you need to consider minimizing travel back and forth between two houses. And, you know, you may actually want to spend some time together. So stay over two or three nights or a week. Um, some people have actually um, moved in together, as, as I mentioned, and, and a lot of people unexpectedly, and they wouldn't have made that plan had there not been a pandemic. So if you do plan to travel, consider making this exception for only one partner to limit the potential spread of COVID-19. So in other words, if this pandemic is ever over, and I'm typically an optimist, <laughs> I'd like to see it over just as much as you would. Um, but if you can, try to limit it to one person and wait to see other partners 
partners until post-COVID, okay? We're living in this digital age, and so it's time to take advantage of that. And there are many other ways to connect without being in the same room. So we can start with texting and sexting and direct messaging, utilizing your phone, a video encounter, you know, face uh, FaceTime. You can actually sign up for some of these HIPAA-compliant for privacy programs, and I know VC is one of them. Um, they're typically for medical, but, you know, check out what the privacy level is on some of these, and that might make you feel a little bit more comfortable. You can always write a love letter. Um, anyway, uh, if you or your partners or people that you are related to are isolating uh, with or people, anyone in your home has a medical condition like, like obesity, there's never been a better time to lose weight. Obesity is one of the number one comorbidities with COVID-19 that leads to um, you know, much more severe illness and actually increased risk of death. So this is the time to lose weight and to get healthy. It's a time to quit smoking as well. Um, so you want to avoid sex with anyone outside of your home if you are immunocompromised in any way or if you are one of those people who has a respiratory illness or has um, obesity because that, you know, likely... Uh, it'll be much more, the the disease actually may affect you that much more. You also want to do your own screening. Now, myself as a healthcare practitioner, I screen everybody that I come in contact with. (laughs) I'm constantly asking those questions. And I think last week I reviewed some apps that actually have those questions um, if you haven't committed those to memory. So you may want to ask a potential lover if they have any cold or flu symptoms, cough, fever, shortness of breath. Um, nas- you know, um, runny nose, uh, sore throat, diarrhea. Um, that's so sexy. Have they traveled anywhere in the last 14 days or have they been exposed or in close contact with anybody who has been diagnosed with COVID-19? You can tell I repeat these questions quite a bit. Do they work in a profession that exposes them to individuals who may have COVID-19? And the best example is a healthcare worker. So certainly it doesn't mean that Healthcare workers can never, ever have a a lover again. Uh, That's not what that means at all. It just means we've got to be careful. Um, because someone who is COVID-19 positive may not have any symptoms, and I can't, cannot stress that enough. They can still transmit the infection, and you may never know if your partner is positive. So the bottom line, limit your sexual contact to consenting individuals within the home. Don't have sex with somebody who has symptoms of COVID-19. I don't care how passionate you are about them or how long it has been. It is not worth your risk. And And COVID-19, it's important, but it's not the only infectious disease that we need to think about. So it's very important that you practice safe sex, use condoms to prevent the transmission of sexually transmitted infections, and an effective method of birth control to prevent any unplanned pandemic pregnancies. Um, so keep in mind and remember that sex with a, without a partner or with a partner that you live with who has no symptoms and has not been exposed to COVID-19 are the best ways to say to stay sexually healthy during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, it, it may seem so sad and, you know, but anyway, there is hope. There is hope. I promise you. Well, welcome to the final stroke of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath educating you, as usual, on all things health, sex, and pandemic, (laughs) COVID-19. I wish it weren't that way, but it is. 
the pandemic has had an effect on so many people in varying ways. It hasn't often been fair, uh, but there's certain things that you can you can actually um, do or pivot. We've talked a little bit about that in the program or, you know, don't give up on love or don't give up on sex. You know, one of the problems with sex is, and I and I feel that uh, this woman is, is singing my song, uh, it's been about education and how women in particular have been educated or not in terms of sex. And so I got this email from a woman and she wrote, and, you know, I get a ton of emails <laughs> And sometimes I'm like, yeah, whatever. Okay, sure, send it to me. And so she she wrote, and I wasn't sure like if I'm what I'm inviting here, if I was inviting you know negativity or what. I had no idea, but I was pleasantly surprised. She wrote, "Hi, Maureen McGrath. Thanks for your talk, and would like to share my take." On the subject. If you're interested, let me know. And so I just wrote back, said, you're welcome. Sure. Fire away. Look forward to hearing your thoughts. Did I really? I wasn't so sure. But nonetheless, I was pleasantly surprised. And that's what it's all about, right? Pleasure. Um, So anyway, she wrote, uh, dear Maureen, wow, that's a much faster response than I expected. Firstly, I grew up in three different cultures, two different and controversial religions, Catholic and Protestant, and two different class categories. In 1989, I moved to Switzerland, and last year I moved back to look after my father. My mother passed away in the spring of 2016. I'm now 62 years old and discovered shortly before I turned 50 that orgasm is important for women. At 50... A girlfriend explained this to me several years later, and I worked on experiencing orgasm. She told me that I have the power and that sex is for me as well. She also gave me a book that was really helpful called Women Come First. It described the process, and it informed me of many things that I did not learn about in my sexual health education. I believe that somewhere along the way I was forbidden to masturbate. And when I finally was able to, I realized that I now had the power. I was talking with this man about six years ago who was trying to set me up with another man. He told me that I needed someone to service me. I couldn't believe it. No man had ever told me that. It was usually about them. I told him that I masturbated and he blurted out that he thought this should be forbidden, which I believe it was at some point in my past. I also read another fascinating book with the title Vulva, which pointed out that our language refers to our genitalia as vagina, which makes us equal to a rubber doll, a hole in essence. What also helped me move forward was the six words the ancient Greeks had for love, realizing that eros was what I believe love is, possibly my mother also. The sex education from my mother was non-existent and in school, very minimal. The sex education of my grandmother was probably even less. Add this to a fanatical version of Catholic doctrines, and here I am. Then she wrote, if anything above is unclear, please do not hesitate to ask. With hearing issues, cultural and language backgrounds, I'm working on being understood and I'm aware of sometimes not being very clear. You know what? I That was very clear to me. I thought that was uh, fantastic. And I see that, hear that so often in my clinical practice that women don't believe that sex is for them. Well, I think the pandemic has demonstrated that sex is for all of us. 
uh, and it's very men, women, they. It's for everybody. We we've actually started seeing politicians talking about sex. They're blushing a bit, but nonetheless, they're still talking about sex, which is great, I think. Um, so, you know, this is really important. And I just wanted to say that uh, in the coming weeks, pun intended, <laughs> only because it's the end of the show and I can't do it now. But in the coming weeks, of course, I'm going to be giving away one of some of uh, my favorite items. I have some favorite things, too. And, and one of those, of course, is the womanizer, which you have uh, probably heard me talk about before, but it is a clitoral stimulation device. I prescribe it to many of my patients in my clinical practice, and I was recently speaking to a woman who had ordered it, and she said, I had suggested it to her, and she said, um, you know, it's I, I got it for sleep because I wasn't sleeping very well, and it's really beneficial for my, for my sleep. She said, but it's also helpful for anxiety. Um, I also had a patient who was a physician and she was getting very nervous as she was going into the operating room and she was actually thinking about going on an antidepressant medication. Well, this is the, the womanizer is a much more conservative approach to anxiety or fear or even that much better than a sleeping pill. Why ingest something that's likely going to have side effects, give you a hangover uh, or make you feel, you know, not not so great. Um, but a good night's sleep is certainly well worth it. A reduction of anxiety. I'm not saying that it is a panacea or that it's going to completely help. Of course, people do have to deal with whatever issues that have caused the anxiety, and that's always beneficial as well. So in the coming weeks, I'm going to be uh, giving away some womanizers, which are they're, they're a $200 value. So it's, a, it's quite a good um, life-altering device. <laughs> Ladies, as we are stuck at home in our bedrooms, uh, perhaps you're by yourself in your bedroom or not, even if you have a partner. Um, the one thing in that note that the lady read was, um, that the lady wrote, sorry, and I read, uh, was that, um, you know, and some people feel this, that if they have a partner that they, you know, shouldn't have or shouldn't have a need for um, a sex toy in their bedroom. Nothing could be further from the truth. And it can certainly enhance a relationship. Not only can it help with health issues, but it can also enhance a relationship. So whether you are alone or together, um, it's not a bad thing to use by yourself or use with somebody else. And so that's the womanizer. If you can't wait or you feel that your chances of winning aren't that great, you can always go to my website, which is uh, MaureenMcGrath.com, and the womanizer is on there um, uh, and available to you. So just a little bit of a way to put a smile on your face during this pandemic because life is better <laughs> with a smile on your face and no better way to get a smile on your face than with a womanizer. And by the way, a lot of people don't like the name womanizer, but I say we have reclaimed that word. Used to be associated with pain and now it's associated with pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your Facebook favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, 
Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.